Well, good morning. It's great that you can be with us today. I want to share with you a story from the life of Jesus that is all about grace. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been doing this series called The Scandal of Grace. And I don't know about you, but I think it has been doing us such good to hear these amazing truths from God's Word. As well as this story, I'm just going to share a short passage from the book of Titus in the New Testament as well. All of the Bible presents to us the truth of God's grace. And sometimes the Bible gives us stories, illustrations of the grace of God. And sometimes the Bible gives us teaching. And it's really useful when these things work together because the stories can help bring clarity and understanding to God's teaching. And indeed, the teaching can help us to interpret the stories. So if you've got a Bible or your phone, then why don't you come with me to John chapter 8, and I'm going to share this story with you. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin, throw the first stone at her. And again, he stooped down to write on the ground. At this, those who heard it began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, he said then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave leave your life of sin. And then I'm just going to share a few verses as well from Titus chapter 3. It says, slander no one, be peaceable, considerate, and always be gentle to everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I wonder if you've ever been in the kind of situation where you have been totally, totally busted. Probably the worst trouble I ever got in in school was in year 11, when I was hauled into the office of our geography teacher and deputy head teacher, uh, Mr. Denning. Now, Mr. Denning was definitely the scariest teacher we had, probably the scariest person I've ever met in my life. I don't know what it is about geography teachers. They just seem to have something about him. 
And so anyway, I was made to sit down in the corner and straight away the full fire and wrath of Mr. Denning's fury began to be poured out in my direction. And he began to raise his voice, he began to get into his momentum as he was listing one after another of my transgressions and beginning to shout down my face. My transgressions basically amounted to having stashed up in my locker close on to 120 cans of lager, not to mention a couple of bottles of whiskey, which were presumably intended to be distributed at the school disco that was coming in a few days' time. Now, the thing about Mr. Denning, when he began to vent his fury at anyone, was that it was very difficult to get a word in edgeways. This isn't a guy that ever wanted to be interrupted. He didn't want any excuses. He wanted to give you a piece of his mind. And so it was a good 15 or 20 minutes before I managed to poke my hand up and, and explain to him that, in fact, the locker was not mine and that I wasn't the culprit. What had happened was that a friend of mine who happened to be on the same school bus as me had been sneaking in five or six or seven cans of lager every day in his backpack and stashing them gradually in his locker indeed, to give out at the school disco. I don't know how he planned to keep them secret once he got them there, but that's what he'd been doing. A really weird thing started to happen about 15 minutes into my grilling and my roasting at the hands of the deputy head, and that is that I started to feel a strange sense of guilt. I started to feel a strange sense of shame, as though I were guilty. Now, I'd been guilty of plenty of things over my school career, but in this matter here, I was completely innocent. The writer and theologian Don Carson writes this about guilt. He says, what a horrendous burden. Sometimes people carry a tremendous weight of subjective guilt, i.e. felt guilt, when they're not really guilty. And this was me in this situation. Although I'd done plenty of things which I could have been legitimately told off for, this was not one of them. The guilt I was feeling in that moment was subjective guilt. But Carson carries on. He says, far worse is the situation where they carry an objective guilt, i.e. they really are guilty of some odious sin in the eyes of the living God, and yet they're so hardened they do not know it. It must have been a fearful and sinking moment for that woman, dragged presumably out of bed early in the morning, sin exposed, her most ashamed, pulled out in front of an angry crowd. Suddenly, all of that objective guilt, that reality of the, of, of the course of events she was pursuing that maybe she'd justified or she'd pushed to the back of her mind, suddenly rushed in and became subjective guilt as she realized she was utterly at the mercy of this mob of violent accusers. And she could have made all kinds of, uh, uh, put together all sorts of mitigating factors. She could have piled mitigating factor one on top of the other, and, and so many of them would have been completely true. But none of it would have done away with the, the fundamental truth that she had been caught red-handed. She could have said things like, well, well, hang on, this is fundamentally unjust. I mean, where is the, the other guilty party in, in this situation? Why are they not being hauled here? It takes more than one person to commit adultery. Why am I the only one being accused? She could have claimed injustice and she would have been right. She could have said, hang on a minute, this, this, is, this is a travesty. This is a, this is a setup job. This isn't even really about me, is it? 
This is just a reason to, to trap this Jesus, this rabbi, by, by giving him this complicated political question where whatever he says, he's damned whatever position he takes. This isn't even about me. That I'm, I'm just being used in this situation. And she would have been right. She might have piled up all sorts of other circumstances. She might have said, you know what, my marriage has just been going stale for so many months now. My husband never pays me any attention. I, I never intended to drift into this relationship. I was just following my heart. And she could have said thing after thing, and she would have been utterly right about all of them. In many respects, she had the right to feel pretty angry. And yet, none of that even would deny the reality that she was caught in grievous sin. And Jesus, in his response, he, he wasn't trying to diminish the severity of what she had done. She wasn't trying to deny it. She wasn't, he wasn't saying, oh, no, 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 count, you know, count all the votes. What, what seems to be happening here isn't what's going on. No, he called it what it was. It was sin. And when he spoke to the people and when he said, any one of you that is without sin, will you go ahead then and cast that first stone? He wasn't diminishing or denying the reality of the sin. He was pointing out only that it is universal. That these sins, these transgressions, we are all guilty before God. A few years ago, one of the elders in this church was a wonderful guy called Murray, Murray Aldridge. Uh, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord now after his battle with cancer. His wife, Rose, is, is still very much with us and part of our church. And Murray was, was a wonderful guy. He was a big guy in every sense of the word. He was big in stature. He was big-hearted. And he was big in God. He's, he had a great, loving faith. And one day, he, he stood up to preach on this, this exact passage. And during the week, he had gone down to, I think it was Seven Beach, and, and he had uh, brought back himself a bag of, of heavy stones like this. And he, he picked up this bag and he thumped it down on the table in front of him as he began to speak. And one by one, he began to pull the, the stones out of his bag and he shared with, with remarkable vulnerability how throughout his life he had found himself in the situation of, of being a bit like that Pharisee, of being the one wanting, as it were, metaphorically to cast the stone. And how God had tenderly, patiently, graciously dealt with him over many, many years, showing him that, that actually he was the one in need of mercy and bringing him to a place of love and grace. It was probably one of the most memorable and most powerful sermons I think I've heard in City Church over the years. And what Murray was coming to, just as Jesus was coming to here, was that none of us is in a position to be casting stones. Not just because stone throwing, not just because passing judgment is a nasty thing to do, but because none of us is in the position to do it. Our sin is universal. In that passage there where, where Paul explained these things to Titus, he says, we too, all of us, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to passions and pleasures and so on and so on. He's, he's painting this very dark, very intentionally stark picture of the condition of our hearts. And, he, and he's at pains to point out that it is all we too, just the same. None of us is in that position to condemn or judge. Because it's always easy to pass judgment, isn't it? Some people are easy to condemn. Politicians are easy to condemn. It's effortless. 
Journalists can be easy to condemn. Adulterers who, who, who turn their back on their spouse and their kids and run off with somebody else, they're easy to condemn. But actually when we do it, it's a kind of self-deception. It's a way of focusing our attention on the wrongdoings of others at the expense of realizing the reality of our own wickedness. If we come to the place where we can see the need in other people to receive grace, but we don't receive it ourselves, we need to, to realize we, we must not fail to receive this grace. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says a stark thing in the first verse. He or she says, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. Do you know what? I, I, I do fear that. I fear maybe in, in this wonderful family that we're part of, in this incredible, beautiful church that we're a part of, maybe there's one or maybe there's two or there's a handful and, and you're part of us and you're here, but do you know what? You are trusting. Maybe in your Christian upbringing, maybe in your prayers, maybe in your church going, Maybe in your moral superiority that you look out at the world and, and you consider yourself a bit better than someone out there and, and your faith is resting in yourself, in your religion, in your good works and you believe yourself to be in good standing with God on that basis and you haven't received that gift of grace. You haven't recognized your need for the mercy of God in your heart. Let, let me implore you, if that is you today, humble yourself before God and receive the free gift of his kindness and grace. Because you know what? Jesus, we can see, showed great mercy in the way that he responded to this guilty woman. But actually what we don't always necessarily recognize is how merciful he was being towards the group of religious leaders, these hypocrites, these Pharisees who were gathered there. He was being very merciful to them as well. Let me explain what I mean. They, they came to expose this woman's wrongdoings. They did it with the cruelest of motives. But actually Jesus, in a similar kind of way, was, was trying to, to highlight, to put his finger on the sins of the Pharisees not with cruel motives, but actually out of mercy, because he wanted them to receive grace. He wanted them to be saved. Because here's what's going to happen. One day, they, like the woman, like me, like all of us watching, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will be asked to give an account of how we've lived our lives. And on that day, these Pharisees would realize that actually they're not so very different from the woman that they just dragged into the market square. That actually all of their hypocrisy, all of their cruelty, all of their own sexual sins, of which I'm sure would be significant for many of them, in the cold hard light of day, they were not so very different from this woman. They've been living their lives in a kind of religious deception. They believed themselves to be morally superior. They believed themselves to be in good standing with God. And they didn't recognize they, as much as any, needed the mercy of Jesus. And by shining a light on that reality now, Jesus was giving them an opportunity to humble themselves and to turn away and receive God's gift of grace. We don't know what Jesus was busy writing in the dirt there. Lots of people have speculated different things. We can't say for sure. 
But whatever it was had the effect of convincing them, of softening the hearts of these hardened accusers enough to make them walk away. Maybe some have suggested he was, he was writing a list of their sins. That's certainly a possibility. Some have suggested he was, he was listing out the Ten Commandments, measuring them against him. That's certainly a possibility. Some have suggested maybe he was, he was writing down a list of their girlfriends, the, the, the women they themselves had had an adulterous relationship with. It's possible. Whatever it was, it conveyed the message, though. It conveyed the message that God sees in secret. God knows the depths of your heart, and you have no business accusing another. But you know what, though? This is an important thing that we need to live with as well, because most of us watching this, we're religious. We, we're, we're churchgoers. And I'm, I'm pushing hard on this this morning because I want us to see something crucially important about the grace of God. If we don't grasp the sheer sinfulness of sin, if we don't, if we don't grasp the depths of the seriousness of the wickedness in our own hearts, then God's mercy and his grace won't seem astonishing to us. We'll sing the words, won't we? Amazing grace, how sweet. But it won't taste sweet to us. It won't seem amazing to our hearts. It should seem like an utter scandal. It ought to seem scandalous to us that the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, would take from us every wrong thing that we've ever thought and said and done and that he would pay the price for us on the cross. And then he would pay us the reward of all of his eternity of goodness. It, that ought to shock us. It ought to be almost too much to believe until the Holy Spirit comes and makes it real to us. You know, I think sometimes that the problem with, with many Christians is that not that we, we don't believe, but that we find it too easy to believe. That someone comes along and says to us, Jesus loves you, God loves you, and we think, well, yeah. We shrug our shoulders and think, yeah, what, what's not to love? It ought to be almost unbelievable. It ought to take a miracle of the Holy Spirit that we can see that this holy God would want us so much to give his own life to bring us to himself. If we don't recognize the extent of the darkness in our own hearts, the bright light of the gospel won't seem very bright at all. So, so what is this gospel? What is this grace? Well, it starts here with these beautiful words of Jesus to this woman, where he says, I do not condemn you. Can you imagine the, the sheer relief, the sweet mercy, as she's standing out there in the early morning in front of these attackers, these betrayers, at the moment of her greatest shame, defenseless, to hear those words from the Son of God, I do not condemn you. This one person in the crowd who could be justified in condemning her, the one person who would be entirely right in his judgment if he was to judge, this perfect man, this spotless Son of God, and at the moment of her greatest need, he says, I do not condemn you. And it is such a gift, isn't it? It is a sure, sheer gift 
This woman has had no time to do anything, to make amends. She's had no time to repent. She's had no time to try and rebuild her marriage. She's had no time to go to couples therapy. She is there in a moment of shame, in a moment of desperation, where she's utterly at the mercy of those around her. And she hears the words she longs to hear. In that moment, you are not condemned. Paul goes on to explain in that passage to Titus, he interprets it like this. He says, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. It's the very definition of that undeserved gift. So this is where grace starts. Grace starts with, I do not condemn you. But grace goes much beyond that mercy. Grace not only takes the punishment we deserve, but grace pays us the riches that Christ has earned. Think of it like the kid who who goes and borrows his parents' car to to drive to a party and and, and impress all his friends, and then totals the car on the way back by, by driving it into a lamppost, completely writing it off. Can you imagine the conversation as, as, as you'd have to go back to your, to your mum and dad or you get the call from the police late at night explaining what had happened and they were oblivious that this thing had even been taken? What would mercy look like in this situation? Mercy might look like, first of all, not grounding this kid for the rest of their life. Mercy might look like not, not saddling them with the cost, not not. not kind of diminishing the first few, first few years of their working life by making them pay back every penny of the thousands and thousands of pounds that have been written off. Mercy might look like embracing them again and welcoming them back into the family home. And that would be lavish mercy in that situation. And what would grace look like? Grace goes beyond even mercy. Grace goes beyond even lavish mercy. Grace looks like then... Buying that kid the day of their next birthday, their brand new car, and handing them the key. And you might be thinking, God, I'd never do that as a parent. I'd I'd never never respond in that way. Maybe not, but listen, this is how our Heavenly Father responds to those who turn to Him. He pours out His grace. How does Paul explain it? Well, he says this very succinctly in the next few verses. He says he saved us through the washing of rebirth. He says that we're washed. It's not just that we go unpunished, but our conscience is clear. The joy of God floods into our life because it is as if we had never sinned. It says he gives us the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he pours out on us. Uh, generously. He pours out the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself living within us, living in our lives consciously every moment. What joy that God wanted to be in that perfect relationship with us. You know, I say this a lot, but I want to remind us today, Jesus did not die for the cross, did not die on the cross for you out of pity. He didn't die on the cross because he couldn't stomach the idea of you going to hell for eternity. He did it to bring you to himself. He did it to draw you to himself, to bring you into relationship where you would know him and he would know you. Christ in you and you in him. Enjoying your presence as you enjoy his presence for eternity. Because he liked you. He wanted you. 
And then Paul goes on, he says, and having been justified by this grace, we become heirs, heirs of the hope of eternal life. We become heirs of God, all the heavenly blessing. Paul writes into the Ephesians that every spiritual blessing in all the heavenly places are ours in Christ Jesus. We have eternal life. Jesus defined eternal life, not just as life that goes on forever, but he says it's life to the full. It's it's life like God has it. He said eternal life is that we would intimately know God and this Jesus who he's sent. So grace starts with I don't condemn you. Grace then lavishes, pays us the reward that Christ has earned. And grace finishes with these beautiful finishing words of Jesus to the woman who he was now standing alone with, where he says, now go and leave your life of sin. Or in some translations, it says, go and sin no more. See, grace isn't just his radical mercy. Grace isn't just lavishing his blessing on us. Grace is the power of God in our lives to break free of the sin that held us captive. Just a few verses earlier on, back in chapter 2 in in Paul's letter to Titus, he says the grace of God has appeared, teaching us or training us to live godly, righteous lives in this present age. He says that that grace is, is the empowering of God to break free of that bondage of sin that we never could have in our own right, in our own strength. A few years ago, I came across an incredible, staggering piece of research, a a survey that was done across hundreds of Christians. I think it was in North America and and, and Canada, but I can't imagine the results would have been too different in the UK. And this was a survey taken of of hundreds of all-in, professing, church-going, praying, believing Christians. And and the survey asked, it just just had a little box, and and, and asked people to, to write down what they understood by the word grace. To, to define it as, as they understood it according to the Bible. And, and, and the reassuring thing, the good thing that came out of this survey was that uh, almost everybody, almost without exception, Christians could define the grace of God by things like his mercy, his forgiveness, Jesus dying and, and rising again, his, his unconditional, unmerited favor, the promise of eternal life, all these things that we've talked about. But the tragedy in this survey was that barely any, less than 2% of Christians could define grace as anything to do with God's empowering to walk free of a life of sin. Not to be perfect, not to never stumble, but to walk free of those things that kept us bound. I was so struck by that thought when I heard it that I picked up my Bible sometime later and I it took, it took quite a while, but I began to look through literally every instance of grace, of the word grace in the New Testament. There's quite a lot of them. And I looked at each word, I looked at each passage, and I began to think, what, what is being conveyed here? What is being put across? Do you know what I discovered? Grace is overwhelmingly presented to us as the, the generous, empowering, the Spirit of God, the life of God in us, to live a radically different life, empowered by him to walk the way Jesus walked. John, in in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, says, whoever claims to abide in him must walk as Jesus walked. 
This is why Jesus called people and he said, follow me. It means walk along my path. Model your life after me. Let me disciple you. Let me shape you. Let my spirit within you guide you into a life of freedom. Walk on that road with me. And of course, we do this and and we stumble many times. Goodness knows I have. And the grace of God is there to lift us up every single time. But we're not stumbling along the path if we were never really walking on it in the first place. Maybe this morning God is calling one or two of you to say, do you know what? I'm walking free of that thing. The grace of God isn't a gradual walking away from sin over months and years when we get around to it. It is the grace, it is the empowering of God to repent thoroughly, completely of all the sin we know in our heart now. Our time is almost gone, but I I just want us to reflect. I want you to reflect. What is God speaking to you this morning? What is God challenging? What is God putting his hand on in your life this morning? And, And what does he want you to do about that? Maybe he's just renewing a great sense of joy that you are saved, that you are filled, that that you are his, that every wrong thing you've ever done is washed away. Maybe you're one of those ones who has found it hard to believe that God could love one like you. And this morning, he's just reaching out to you, saying, let me pour my love into your heart. Maybe you're one who has been resting on your own religiousness. Maybe you've been resting on your own good deeds. Maybe you've been comparing yourself to others and thinking, well, at least if I can sit above the average, then I'll be right in God's sight. And God would implore you this morning, come, humble yourself before me, receive the grace that you need. Maybe God is calling some of you to say, do you know what? I've, I've lost sight of the brilliant white light of grace. I've diminished that understanding of the sin in my life and, and I've treated grace as though it was nothing. Maybe some of you need to come and lay some things down before God this morning. I'm going to hand over to to Maeve and to James and the band now. They're going to lead us in a song. And and as we do that, just let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Just, Just invite him to come and show you what he wants you to do, how he wants you to respond to him this morning. Over to you guys.